The scripture this morning is from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us now. We ask that you would let us hear you speaking to us, Jesus. You are the living word, and we thank you for this written word you've given to us. Let us hear your voice. So we pray for ears to hear. We pray that we would walk out of here different today because we've met with you, the living God. So Jesus, we come to you now and we commit this time to you. We ask your blessing upon it. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Okay, that was 20 seconds. That's all, 20 seconds. And for some of you, it felt like a very long time. You see, we don't like silence. We complain about noise, but silence actually makes us more uncomfortable. That's why you can't go into the mall, into your doctor's office, even into most elevators you step into without hearing some kind of music or some kind of noise. It's why if you're part of a small group and a question has been asked, some extrovert's going to jump in within five seconds because anything longer than five seconds starts feeling very uncomfortable to the whole group. Today we begin a new series. It's a very short series, one of the shortest we've ever had. It's just three weeks. And at this time of year, as we work towards Christmas, we often ask each other, what are you doing for Christmas? It's a very common question. It means where are you going? How are you spending it? What, do you, what does your family do if you have a family at Christmas? So this series, we're actually calling it, what are you not doing for Christmas? And this series is meant to help us together experience Christ during this Advent season. So, today and the two weeks following, the two Sundays following this one, we're going to focus on three of what are called disciplines of abstinence. Basically, disciplines of abstinence are spiritual disciplines where you intentionally don't do something you're not doing 
so that in the not doing you experience the Lord. Thus, what are you not doing for Christmas? And so the three that we're going to focus on are silence, secrecy, and Sabbath. With Sabbath falling on Christmas Day, we'll actually talk about that in a slightly different way than you might be expecting. You know, this time of year is a time that is so busy and so hectic, the desire in this is to help us not do more, which is our natural tendency, but to do a little less, and in the doing of less, in the not doing, to experience the Lord a little more. Because you know how it goes. Sometimes, parents, you wake up, the Christmas, you know, tear through the packages happens, now it's time to get ready for lunch, and you're sitting there, and you're exhausted, and you feel like, gee, I, I mean, where did the time go? Why am I completely wiped out? Why am I not feeling the love, the joy, the hope, and the peace of Christmas right now? Why does it feel like it's all a blur, and why am I utterly exhausted? I've shared this story with you guys before. You know, the Sherpas who help people on their expeditions climbing Everest, the Sherpas are the true expert climbers, and they carry hundreds of pounds on their back, you know, up the mountain the same way all these you know, professionals do it, except, you know, they're carrying all the gear and all the weight. Well, on this one particular expedition, the team was trying to set certain records, and so what they were doing is they were pushing everyone in the group very hard. They were starting very early, going as late as possible, sometimes past dark. And on the third day of the expedition, the group woke up at four in the morning, and the Sherpa said, we're staying put. You can go, but we're staying here. And the people in the expedition are going nuts. They're very upset, and the Sherpa's response was this, we're staying here to allow ourselves a day for our souls to catch up with our bodies. You know, Christmas can be such a rush of busyness where it feels like we left our souls behind. Our bodies are in the room with the Christmas tree and the kids and the family on Christmas Day, but it feels like our souls are somehow lagging behind. Why aren't we feeling what we are meant to feel during this most wonderful time of the year? So, this series is meant to help us have our souls be with our bodies, experience the Lord by not doing a couple of things leading up to Christmas. So let me ask you a few questions, four actually. First, you can answer these just in your own mind. How much noise do I voluntarily subject myself to? Any given day, just think about the noise you voluntarily subject yourself to. Could there be a connection between the amount of noise in my life and my inability to hear God? Does my schedule look like it is set as a person who actually wants to hear God's voice? And finally, do I believe God's voice could actually be more interesting than the other voices around me? You may not realize this, but silence is actually part of the Christmas story, not just a silent night when the angels broke into song, but there was a gift of silence leading up to the advent of Jesus Christ, and so celebrating silence during Advent is actually quite 
appropriate. Practicing it is quite appropriate. And the story involves a priest by the name of Zechariah. You'll find his story in the book of Luke, chapter 1, right at the beginning. I'm going to read that to you. You can open your Bibles if you have them to Luke 1. Hear God's word in this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in the years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. A gift of silence is given to Zechariah. And the next nine months leading up to the birth of John the Baptist, which is the promised child here, Zechariah gets a gift of experiencing the Lord's presence in a way that somehow the Lord could not be present to Zechariah in the midst of sound. Now, this gift of silence actually has two aspects to it. And one, I didn't even realize until getting into the text the past couple of weeks. The first one is very obvious. Zechariah cannot speak. Now imagine stepping out after seeing an angel and trying to tell the people around you what just happened. They somehow figured it out by the motions that he's making. He's seen a vision. He's seen an angel. He's, something significant has happened, but he can't speak. All he can do is sign to them. That's the first aspect, is that Zechariah cannot talk. But the other aspect is something that's easy to miss. And what you see is you'll find this starting in verse 62. And so this is, you fast forward nine months in the story, and then you'll read in verse 62 uh, these verses here. On the eighth day, they, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Now, if you have an ESV study Bible, or if you have commentaries on this, you'll see they all agree. Zechariah not only cannot speak, he's deaf. He has been nine months in total silence. He can't talk. He can't hear. So there's two aspects to this concept. And this actually, if you understand that Zechariah not only couldn't speak, he couldn't hear as well, it actually explains these next verses quite well because, okay, if he could hear, well, he just heard his wife say, well, the boy's name is to be John. And so he, yeah, what she said... He didn't hear her say that. And that's why it says, 
he asked for a writing tablet. They signed to him, what do you want to name the child? He signed asking for a writing tablet. And basically what a writing tablet was, was a piece of wood with a very thin sheet of wax over the top of it with a stylus. It was a one-use thing. And he would inscribe into the sheet of wax, you know, to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. This is why they were astonished. They didn't hear Elizabeth just say that. So he's confirming. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. You see, silence involves not only not speaking, but also having nothing to hear. So young people, it's not about being quiet and then putting earbuds in your ears and listening to music. That's not silence as we're defining it today. It's also not being quiet and sitting there listening to a sermon. You may be quiet, but that's not practicing silence necessarily. Silence is about cultivating an inward attentiveness. You know the Lord is always with you wherever you are. Silence is about being aware and attentive to His presence with you every single moment. And so silence usually involves the absence of speech. I may, if we have time, get into that. It usually involves the absence of speech. It always involves the act of listening. Who are you listening to? Not music, not other people. You're listening to the Lord. And to simply refrain from talking without listening to God is not silence. It's just being quiet. James 3 The passage that Stephanie read at the beginning of this tells us about the need for control when it comes to the use of our tongue. What silence does is it actually teaches us when to speak and when not to speak in life. James' analogies, and I'd encourage you to study these, his analogies of a rudder of a ship or a bridle bit in the mouth of a horse, they suggest to us that the tongue needs control, and that the tongue actually, as he says in James, controls, directs the course of our life in many different ways. Let me just give you one simple example of this to maybe make this clear. If you tell a lie, what do you typically have to do following the lie? Lie again, right? Because now your tongue in speaking the lie has put that out there, And now you have to follow it up unless you're going to come clean. And so now your tongue is directing the path of your life as you continue to tell lie upon lie upon lie. And actually what it will do is it will direct the course of your very behavior where your behavior is seeking to give credence to the lie. You see, the tongue guides our lives in so many different ways. So now, why practice silence? Let me give you a few things that are meant to be an encouragement to why, why might you want to do this over Advent. And as I said, here's the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is to experience the Lord. That's why we do this. That's why we're encouraging you to do this in the weeks leading up to Christmas, to experience the Lord. Because when you experience the Lord, you're no longer the same. 
If you experience the Lord, He changes you. He transforms you. And so ultimately, it's about transformation, but it's about experiencing the Lord. And here's four simple things about why practicing this at Advent. The first is this. Silence gives you an opportunity to worship and listen to the voice of God. You see, silence breaks our addiction to noise. It allows us to worship and to hear God's voice better. You know, worship, you, you realize this, right? Worship does not require sound. It doesn't require speaking. There's a type of worship where it can consist in God-focused stillness where we're mindful of being in His presence. And our mouth isn't running and we're not singing songs. We are in His presence and we know that and we're being still before Him. That's worship. Silence gives you an opportunity to worship God that way and also to listen to the voice of God. Habakkuk 2.20 says this, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Now notice up there, let all the earth be silent before Him. It's a reminder. You're not just sitting there. You're sitting there fully attentive to and aware that I am sitting before the Lord. It's that awareness of seeking Him and listening to His voice, putting yourself in a posture of Lord. It's kind of like what Samuel said when the Lord called him, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You know, there are times when we should eliminate the voices of the world in order to better hear God's voice. Jonathan Edwards said the secret to his wife's godliness was silence. And he talks about how what she would regularly do is he he actually writes, she loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves, and always has someone invisible conversing with her. He said that her silence and walking in the fields and the groves was her time with the Lord, and he said that was the secret to her godliness, because she was known as a very godly individual. Now, let me tell you this. I'm a novice at this. I've been trying to do this for years, but you don't become a master at this quickly. And in all my times of practicing silence, I have never heard the audible voice of God. Not saying it couldn't happen, but I've never experienced that. Here's how I experience it typically. When I practice silence, I'll usually open my time, spending time in the Word, and then saying, Lord, speak for your servants listening. And I'll sit there. And what I find is that the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, directs my thoughts. It's not an audible voice, Rick, do this. It's the Lord speaking to me by directing my thoughts in different ways. And obviously, I confirm that against His Word and against truth and all of that. But the Lord regularly is speaking to us by directing our thoughts. All you have to do is be aware of His presence with you. Now, that's that's the sad thing is that most evangelicals, they think, oh, that sounds a little mystical. That sounds, this is what Christians have been doing throughout the centuries, being led by God's Holy Spirit, letting Him speak to them, guide their thoughts, and directing them. Silence, stopping, lets you hear Him. Here's the second thing. Silence lets you have opportunity to consider the state of your soul and be restored You could say it this way. It gives you the chance to reflect 
on the things that really matter in life. Isaiah 30, verse 15 says this, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Now, if you're a Boy Scout, you're familiar with what's called a recurved bow. There's basically, there's different types of bow. There's compound bows and crossbows, but the recurved bow is basically the old type of bow. And I used to have one It was called a bear bow. It was literally made for bear hunting. I don't hunt. It was given to me as a gift. And this thing, it had almost, it was rated somewhere between an 85 to 100 pound pull on the string. And on a recurved bow, that's really hard because this thing was a mammoth thing. And Unstringing it and stringing it actually took a lot of work. Silence, when you would unstring that recurved bow, if you weren't careful, it would just pop up and it would literally go flying and put a hole in the sheetrock. So you'd have to do it very gently, but once that thing came to rest, that bow, it went from a rigid state to a very flexible state. Silence is almost like taking the string off of our soul for a moment and letting it rest. You see, silence is taking your soul, letting your soul catch up to your body, like the Sherpa said, and being in God's presence and being restored in different ways. The busyness of life will never restore your soul. Sitting with your Maker and experiencing Him will. Here's the third thing. Silence gives you the opportunity to regain spiritual perspective and also seek God's will. See, Zechariah had a real gift to get spiritual perspective as he was silent and could not hear for nine solid months. I'm willing to bet that in silence, God's Word became very real to Zechariah. But not only God's Word, God's presence became very real to Zechariah. I mean, just think about it for a second. You can't hear anything. And you can't speak to anyone. You see people all around you, but there's no noise, no sound, nothing, and you can't communicate with them verbally. God's presence became very real to Zechariah in different ways. Psalm 37 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Some of you who work at the Billy Graham Library probably know this story, but the year was 1949. And the Reverend Billy Graham was just coming on the scene in a very big way uh, to become what he's now known as one of the greatest evangelists of all times. In 1949, as that was happening, there was also a man that, if you know the story, you'll recognize the name, Charles Templeton, also known as Chuck Templeton. He was actually a little better known than the Reverend Graham at this time. Here's what was happening, though. Charles Templeton was coming under different influences in his life where he was now starting to question, is this really God's Word? Is it really true? Is it really inspired? What about science and all the things related to science and creation, all these kind of things? And so he really was becoming skeptical, and he was starting to share all of his skepticism with the Reverend Graham as they were fast friends. Well, it actually started creating a crisis in the Reverend Graham's life because he's thinking about his future and where he's going. And so what he did is he actually 
took a retreat of silence and solitude in the San Bernardino Mountains, and he writes this, I went alone to the cottage, and I read in my Bible for a while, and I decided to take a walk in the forest, and it was in the silence that I received spiritual perspective. Because he's wrestling with all of this stuff about what is true, what is not true. What do I really believe? And if you read the whole account, the Reverend Graham says that that silence in the San Bernardino Mountains in the woods, the Lord met him there in a very real way, and it, and it both confirmed and directed the whole rest of the course of his life. As he came to gain spiritual perspective on, I don't have to have an answer scientifically for everything in life. I know what I believe, and I know why I believe it, and I know in whom I believe, and that's enough. He's not saying rational thought and reason is unimportant, but the Lord met him in silence. And you can read about Charles Templeton today. He died not that long ago. In an interview he gave, he broke down in tears saying how much he missed Jesus and how much he wanted to believe, but his skepticism got in the way. And what you find is that Charles Templeton's life took a very different direction from the Reverend Graham's, even though originally they were on the same path. Maybe you're looking for God's will for your life. Maybe you're looking for spiritual perspective. Silence is a way to receive that. Here's the fourth thing. In silence, you learn to trust in God and reflect on how you use words. Psalm 46 says, be still. Just simply be still and know that I am God. Think about Zechariah being unable to speak for a moment. And and think about how we usually use words. So for nine months, here's Zechariah. This had to be incredibly painful. He cannot use words to try to control or manipulate the people around him. You realize that's one of the primary ways we use words? We are constantly, we are control addicts, and we are constantly trying to control and manipulate the people around us by the words that leave our tongues. Zechariah, for nine months, couldn't control or manipulate anyone in that way. He couldn't play the martyr in that way. So Zechariah can't convince them of things that he knows to be right. He cannot argue with them unless he just wants to shake his head no, and you're not going to win many arguments that way. He cannot engage in town gossip. He can't say in small group, oh, I know the answer to that. One, he can't hear the question, and he can't give the answer anyway. He can't give advice to somebody who desperately needs it. He can't give directions on how to get to the local market. He cannot tell people about the thoughts of his heart. And so what Zechariah, part of the gift given to him, was nine months to reflect on, Zechariah, how do you use words? And that's been a thing I've been asking myself all week long. Rick, how do you use words? Do you use them only for your own purposes? Or are your words flowing out of an awareness and an attentiveness to the Lord and you let him be in control. There's an old story of a monk who was wrestling with this very concept, and he looked out of his window, and he was in this situation where some other monks actually were kind of berating him in different ways. And he saw a carpet, kind of like one of these, draped over a clothesline as it was drying, and he saw a dog ripping it to shreds, hanging from it. Just This dog was into this carpet, 
And he said, it was like the Lord said to me, you feel like your reputation's becoming like that carpet being ripped apart. Let me control the circumstances. And so this monk engaged in, I'm going to stay silent. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to control my reputation. I don't need to project an image to the world in different ways. And he talked about how I let God take control. And I found out that he's sufficient, that I don't need to grasp on to control with my words at all times. So at Advent, the point of practicing silence is not just to practice silence, right? So it's not just being good for goodness sake, being quiet for quiet's sake. It's about being still before the Lord to experience Him in a very real way. You see, you can be quiet and you can be really messed up. You can be quiet as an introvert and not be experiencing the Lord at all. And I think it's an apocryphal story, but it makes a good point about a monk who actually joined a monastery and he was required to take a vow of silence. And in this monastery, they were allowed two words every 10 years. So he joins, and after 10 years, he has his meeting with the abbot. And he's, the abbot says, what would you like to say? And the monk says his two words, food, bad. <laughs> the abbot said, okay, thank you very much. Ten more years go by, and he gets two more words. He goes and he has his, you know, every 10-year meeting with the abbot, what do you have to say? Bed, hard. Okay, thank you. Ten more years go by, and now at his third meeting with the abbot, abbot says, what do you have to say? He says, I quit. <laughs> and the abbot's response was, good, you've done nothing but complain since getting here. <laughs> and while I believe it's apocryphal, <laughs> it makes a good point. You can be practicing being quiet and yet your heart be a mess where you're quietly looking at all the things that irritate you and annoy you and bother you. That's not practicing silence as we're talking about it. That's just being quiet. Silence isn't just practicing silence. So it's good to ask yourself some questions. How can God speak to you in silence? And how might He change your speech patterns and set you free? Let me give you three simple ways to practice this. This will be very brief because I know maybe this is new to you and you want to try it and, and there's some very easy ways to practice this. Here's the first one. Three simple ways to practice this not of Advent. The first is this, refrain and reflect. And here's what I mean. Take some time on a given day where you're not going to speak at all. Okay, now if you're married, let your spouse know ahead of time. Okay, so they don't think you're giving them the silent treatment. But maybe take a full day. This is, and, and, and maybe that seems like actually, okay, that's jumping into 401 level coursework. It may be to not speak a single word all day long. It also involves, to the best of your ability, to removing some of the noise, too, from your life. If that's too much, find an hour or two where you will refrain from speaking Maybe you simply try to speak as little as possible in a given day. And so rather than, well, I know that answer, or I need to prove this point, or I need to be right here, you, you just, in the moment, you don't speak. Because you don't have to. Uh, maybe it's this. Maybe your action of practicing silence and refraining is 
refraining from uttering a single complaint all day long. Whoa. (laughs) You know, I have a friend, I won't say who because I work with him, he never complains. What a gift to have a friend who I never hear a complaint from him. Never. Maybe practicing silence for you is just to say, Lord, help me to be silent today by not uttering one complaint, not saying one negative thing to the people around me. That's a way you can practice silence. And at the end of the day, here's what you do. As you lie on your bed at night, going to bed, reflect all the conversations you had all day long and think about how you used words that day. Were they said in the knowledge of God's with me and I'm saying this, or was this because I was seeking to build my own kingdom and promote myself or whatever? Reflect on your words. Here's the second thing. Fast from the noisemakers in your life. Okay, you can't get away from your kids forever. I've got four little ones. There's a lot of noise all the time in our house. So what do I have to do? Sometimes I take the dog for a walk, and that's a period of silence for me. And some of you are saying, well, you know, okay, good for you. I've got to still be with the kids. Swap with a spouse. And maybe if you're a single parent, swap with a friend where you get an hour, not to go do that extra shopping, not to run all these errands you have to do, but an hour of your swapping duties for the purpose of silence. Give that gift to a loved one this season. By taking a fast from the noisemakers, maybe it's taking a fast from these things. Could you live a day without your phone, without the internet, without being connected? Try going dark for one day. Get off the grid. You realize in some worship traditions, this, I know this will sound really weird to you guys, in many worship traditions, Christian traditions, as a part of Sunday morning gatherings, there's actually long periods where there's silence as part of worship. That means there's no sermon, no reading of Scripture, no noise, no singing, no background music, no nothing. Not even a white noise machine. And what it is, is the congregation saying, we're going to sit for these 20, 30, sometimes longer minutes, and together as a body of Christ, be aware we're in the presence of God, and we're going to listen for His voice. What a wonderful thing. So for the next 40 minutes, no. Um, (laughs) The third thing, and we're almost done. Schedule time for it. Here's the thing. If you don't schedule it, it probably won't happen because life is crazy busy. I get it. And I know many of you are thinking, you don't know my schedule. No, I don't. But you can be intentional and make this happen. As I mentioned, you can swap duties with somebody. If you want to, I got permission for this. If your house is just always crazy and you can't even get out in your neighborhood, we'll let you book a room at the church over the next month where you can come for an hour or half an hour or all day if you want, and that room will be your room for the day to sit with the Lord. Maybe it's at home and you make a chair. This is my chair to experience the Lord in. And so you tell the kids and everyone else, okay, when when mom or dad's sitting in this chair, I won't be there a long time, but I'm not going to talk. And I don't want 20 questions. 
because it's my time to sit in God's presence. Create a space where you can do this. And here's what I'll tell you, just from personal experience. If you try to do this, you're not going to like it at first. Because here's what happens, at least what happens to me. In the first 10 minutes of trying to do this, my mind starts going into overdrive, and I literally start thinking of everything I have to do. And it's just like, hello, what is going on here? I stink at being silent. Because my mind, I'm sitting quietly, but my mind engages in overdrive activity. It'll probably happen to you. Knowing that can help you push through that. And sometimes you just have to push through it. That's what I do is I put a notepad beside my chair. I'll say, okay, I'll write it down and I'll get to it later so my mind can be free. Maybe you're scared to be bored. Just remember you're in the presence of the one who made you, who wants to talk to you. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, he gives us this encouragement. He says, be still and know that I am God, quoting Scripture. He says, be still. Quit rushing through the streets long enough to become aware that there's more to life. When we are noisy and when we are hurried, we are incapable of intimacy, deep, complex, personal relationships. If God is the living center of redemption, it is essential that we be in touch with and responsive to that personal will. If God has a will for this world and we want to be in on it, we must be still long enough to find out what it is, for we certainly are not going to learn it by watching the evening news. There's so much truth in that. So as we end, and before we sing our last song, I do want to take, and we're just going to take two minutes, that's all. It's not 40. I guarantee you, for some of you, two minutes is going to seem like a long time. But it's a gift to sit in God's presence. And so what I encourage you is to remember you are in the presence of God. He is closer than the very air you breathe. Know that you're in the presence of the one who loves you so much he went to the cross where he stayed silent so he could go to that cross. He didn't call down the legions of angels to take out the guards. He stood before Pilate and Herod quietly so he could go to the cross. In the garden when he prayed to his father, Dad, you can take this cup from me, there was silence. Silence is actually a part of our salvation story too. Why did he do that? He loved you so much. Friends, Jesus loves you more than I can possibly articulate to you. And he is in this room with us right now by power of his Holy Spirit. So I invite you, be still and know that he is God. Let's pray together. Father, for some of us, two minutes seems like not nearly enough time. And for some, it seems like an infinity. Lord, we pray that during this Advent season, our bodies wouldn't get out ahead of our souls and that we would take time intentionally to sit and be with you, to practice your presence, to be still before you, knowing that you are God and that we would have the gift of experiencing you and hearing your voice. Lord, we pray that you would give us that gift this Advent season so that we wouldn't miss the joy, the hope, the peace, and the love that are present to us this time of year. Lord Jesus, may may this be a season where as we...
practice not doing certain things, that we would experience you all the more and that you would glorify yourself in us and through us all the more. Lord, we give you our tithes and our offerings and we sing this last song to you as an expression of our worship. In your holy name, amen.